Lord, we thank you for these kids, and I pray that you would speak to them through your word, Lord. May they know the fullness and depth of who you are, and may they know their call to go forth proclaiming your name and baptizing others. Lord, I pray that you would be with us now as well as we consider our passage from 1 Corinthians and all of its difficulties and hardness. Lord, grant us grace to understand what your Apostle Paul is calling us to give us courage to walk the way of the cross. And Lord, in doing so, may we bear witness to others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. So I knew, it was probably back in January when we started reading 1 Corinthians, that we would get to these chapters eventually. Um, and so here we are. Um, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And the thing about, um, it's not always seen in our tradition where we would just pick a book of the Bible and read through it. It, it happens, but... You know, in a liturgical church, you get interrupted by, by themes and, and feast days, and those are good. And so we took a break for Lent and, um, and, and a little bit of Easter, but, but we've committed, right? We've committed to picking it back up. And last week we paused for Pentecost, but, but now we're in a great stretch where we can um, finish out the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and there's some really great things in this book. It's an amazing book, and I think it's actually especially helpful for us today in our current climate, in our current situation. Um, just some quick background, just to get us all on the same page, and then we're going to dive into our topic this morning. But just, just to remember what is happening in Corinthians, right? This is um, a city in Greece. Um, it would have been a very cosmopolitan city, very, um, very popular city. Um, uh, lots going on there. Um, lots of itinerant speakers, right, coming in and out. And that was part of the problem Paul's been addressing is, is the church was dividing up just like the town would divide up. Their, you know, their different philosophers would come in and um, they would, the townspeople would pick their favorite and they'd say, I'm with, I'm with Joe or I'm with Bob. And, and they would have intense arguments over who was the best. And, and the church is doing that as well because Paul came in and then Apollos came in and then others have heard about Peter and they're all dividing up. And so Paul spends the first five chapters of Corinthians explaining to them that that is not reflecting Jesus. That's not reflecting the gospel. And the common theme um, that you can trace through almost every page of Corinthians is this idea that the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness. And the foolishness of the world is actually the wisdom of God. And so things that Christians do, ways that Christians behave, um, the person we worship might look foolish in the eyes of the world, right? I mean, who in the world would say, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense to worship a crucified Messiah. Messiahs don't get crucified, right? That's foolishness. But we know it's the wisdom of God. And so that is something Paul is going to drive home time and time again as we read um, 1 Corinthians. That what might look like folly to the world is actually the wisdom of God, and what might look wise in the eyes of the world is actually folly. Um, and that's important to remember. And it's important to remember to Paul's setting as well. This is a 
a pre-Christian world, right, that he's living in, in, in the Mediterranean, in Rome, the Roman Empire, and I mean, the, the gospel is going forth rapidly, but the culture is, is pre-Christian. Um, and nowadays, I think you could say, and we'll, we'll look at it in a second, we're increasingly living um, in a world that would be considered post-Christian, um, after Christendom. And so the idea of that is um, there was a season in time where the world had a shared language of, um, of, of if not faith, of at least belief and understanding of how the world works. And um, just you could find some commonality in a lot of people on morals and how you were expected to behave and what was considered um, right. And, and because Christianity had been so influential in the, the growth of nations, um, that was a big part of how nations were formed. But as you get to a post-Christian world, um, people start dropping these things. And all of a sudden, we start looking like the pre-Christian world. It can seem scary, right? But it's actually a great opportunity. Because when everybody thinks they're a Christian, what role is there for the church? What role is there for us to proclaim the gospel? But in a world where lines are clearly drawn, when people realize that, oh, you know what? I actually don't have to wake up early and go to church on Sunday morning. Um, you don't have to. Uh, people know whether they're Christian or not, right? It's not, there's this, this sort of cultural expectation that everybody's a Christian sort of fades away and the church is um, refined by fire. And then all of a sudden, we have a really important message that people need to hear. And people realize they're missing something. And we have the answer. That's what you see in Corinth. People are following Jesus because of who He is and the salvation offered in Him and the new way of life in Him is something so appealing and so attractive and so different than everything they've seen before. And so what we're going to see is the Corinthians are struggling, right? They're having a hard time. We've had this whole issue of division, um, but it's not just that. They've written to Paul, and they've said, hey, we're struggling with these things. We're struggling with in our marriages, right? We're struggling with um, uh, spiritual gifts. We're struggling with how to take uh, communion. We're struggling with this idea of death. All these things are really hard for us. But instead of abandoning Jesus, they've reached out for help. Because the message of the gospel is so precious to them. And Paul knows that. And so I think he gets frustrated with them, but it's a frustration in love. And he's, he's speaking truthfully to them and, and laying out the way of the cross, the way of the gospel. And it looks foolish. It looks foolish to the rest of the world. But it's wisdom to God. And so we've come... Now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul is now going to start responding to some questions that the Corinthians have. He's giving them advice. He's saying in light of the gospel, in light of this wisdom and folly dichotomy, let me address some of these situations you're having in the church. And the question before us today, right there at the top of your outline, is, is this. What does the wisdom of God look like both in marriage and in singleness? What does the wisdom of God look like in marriage and in singleness? That's what the Corinthians are asking. And so 
Um, if you have your Bibles, this would really be a great day to follow along. Um, or if you have a Bible app, we have some Bibles out on the table back behind Lauren and James, if you want to, to hold one in your hands. But um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at the first verse. And the first thing we're going to see um, is, is Paul's going to address marriage. And we're going to see that marriage is marked by a shared generosity. Marriage is marked by a shared generosity. So let's look at this, um, chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Uh, we'll start here at verse 1. Now this is, look closely at verse 1 for me for a second. Um, because when you just hear it read, you miss the quotation marks, and they're really, really important. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then he puts in quotation marks, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Um, now, if you miss the quotation marks, you might say this is a command from Paul. Considering the matters about which you wrote, um, it's good not to do this, right? And, but that's not what he's saying. He's quoting them back to themselves. He's saying, concerning these matters that you wrote about, that it's good to not have sexual relationships, sexual relations with women, he's going to disagree. He's going to disagree. But why? Why would they ask that in the first place? Why is this even an issue? Well, what's happening is they're taking... Um, a previous teaching that they would have heard from Paul um, to an extreme, right? And so the problem in the culture of Corinth, I'm just going to be blunt, was not celibacy. That was not a problem in Corinth at all. Um, it was a very promiscuous society. It was, I mean, there were whole cults of Roman gods and goddesses that were dedicated um, to, to having sex, right? And so when Paul comes in and plants this church, he says, look, you can't do this. This is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. And he teaches them about what faithfulness looks like inside of marriage and, and what, what faithfulness looks like when you're single. He teaches them all of that. But what happens is, um, <clears throat> you can imagine an effort just to make sure no one crosses the line. The pendulum swings the other way. And they're like, okay, don't do it at all. Right? No more. And that would have been actually a common teaching. There was... Um, it was a loosely defined heresy, it was Gnosticism that was spreading throughout the Roman Empire, and, and much of it looked kind of like Christianity, and um, Gnosticism really highlighted the importance of the spiritual realm, um, and, and Christianity is a spiritual religion, so it's kind of attractive, right? And, but Gnosticism really discounted the material world, that what we saw here, what we did here was not important, right? Gnosticism would say what's most important is the spiritual realm. And what's most important is disciplining yourself and learning the secrets to become a more spiritual being. Sex is a very physical act. No room for that in Gnosticism. And so that was attractive heresy, and that was um, what many were drawn to. And what Paul is saying is, like, this is too far. This is not the gospel. And so what you have heard and what you are teaching, or what some are teaching in your church, is wrong, Right? And so he says that in verse, um, he, he sets the stage in verse 1, and then he responds in verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. But do not prive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, 
but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what Paul, first thing Paul wants to say here, okay, is he's going to say, look, you've taken it too far. I'm not saying that you should not have sexual relationships inside of marriage. In fact, the first thing he wants to get across um, is that for those who are married, for those who are married, and this is a bullet point on your outline, for those who are married, sex is a physical sign of the generosity of a godly marriage. Sex is a physical sign of the generosity of a godly marriage. What Paul is saying is actually pretty revolutionary, and, and it's actually in, in this culture it is jarring to hear, right? Paul says, Your body is not your own. It belongs to your spouse. Now, in that culture, um, the first one he says, he says, Wives, your body is not your own, it belongs to your husband. Um, I think a lot of people would say, would be tracking with that, right? But when Paul flips that, and says, husbands, your body's not your own, it belongs to your wives. That is a revolutionary thing to say in Paul's day and in Paul's culture. Um, it's pretty revolutionary that our bodies in the married relationship belong to each other. But it makes sense, right? Because in marriage, what does it say in Genesis? That Adam um, <clears throat> became one flesh with Eve, right? That we become one flesh when we are married. Um, and so, if we are one flesh, does it not make sense that we would share generously with our spouse? We would share generously spiritually, we'd share generously emotionally, and it would make sense that we would share generously physically. And that's why you see with, with sex, is this, it's a, a physical sign of the generosity of a godly marriage. If you are married and you are giving generously of all these things to your spouse, um, there's a sacramental type of aspect to sex that says this is a physical sign of what I'm doing with my whole life. And that's why actually when you take this outside of a marriage and you say, I'm going to do the physical sign, but I'm going to withhold all of this other stuff. I'm going to withhold emotionally. I'm going to withhold spiritually. I'm going to withhold other parts of my life. I just want this one part to share with you. It is not a surprise that it causes all kinds of problems. And so we need to realize that this is a, a beautiful sign and a powerful sign um, of the generosity of a godly marriage. But here's something really important to remember. The second bullet point. This only works this only works in an environment of mutual respect and giving. You hear that? I want to be very clear about this point. This only works in an environment of mutual respect and giving. If one person has this, one person has this posture and the other person does not, that is um, probably going to turn into an abusive relationship. And so this is not the sort of thing where you're like, you give and give and give to somebody else and you never get anything in return. This is a mutual giving and taking. And if you're in a relationship that's not mutual like that, if your marriage does not have that mutuality, then by all means, get some help. You can come talk to me. I've got lots of resources. I can help you. 
And so this is not just a, um, a thing that you just do without reservation or without qualification, this, this deep mutual generosity, because it has to be in this relationship of respect and love. But the reality is, in a world where, and, and this would have been the world of Corinth, and it's the world of us today, right? In a world where pleasure, right, and self-fulfillment, okay, I would say these two things, pleasure and self-fulfillment are ultimate goods. If you say, if you were asked random people on the street what, what are the most important things, they would probably give you some version of pleasure and self-fulfillment. And when these, in a world where these two things are ultimate goods, what Paul is telling us about marriage is radical and is going to look foolish because this giving up of yourself for the sake of someone else um, is sort of the opposite of seeking your own pleasure and seeking your own self-fulfillment. It looks foolish to the world, but it is wise in the eyes of God. To give generously of yourself for the sake of your spouse is wisdom for the gospel. So that's the first thing. Marriage is marked by a shared generosity. Um, the second thing, Paul starts to, to go off now, and he realizes, like, I know I've got married people in my congregation. I've probably got widows in my congregation. I've got divorced people in my congregation. I've got single people in my congregation. And so he's going to address all of this, and we're going to get into um, some, of that, some of that now. So um, first, marriage is marked by shared generosity. The second thing is outside pressure should not influence our um, marital status or any sort of status whatsoever, but specifically you're talking about marital, marital status. Um, outside pressures should not influence that, and, and we'll get into that. Let's look at verses 7 to 16. Or 6, excuse me. 6. Um, we'll first look at verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as my, I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so the first thing we see here, when Paul's talking about outside pressure, um, we get this idea that it should not influence our, our status. Um, after Paul's talked about relationships within the marriage, okay, he's taking a step back. He's sort of backing up or flying a little higher, and he's looking at um, marriage, marital status in general, right? And he's already spoken about the challenge of sexual temptation. He's saying, okay, so it is good to be married, especially because, because many people are going to face this challenge. Um, but for those who this is not an issue, for those that that temptation is not an issue, Paul says this, it's really interesting in verse 6, um, I say that it is good to remain single as I am. It is good to remain single as I am. And so this is the first bullet point, and this is something that churches are really bad at teaching. Um, but Paul actually commends, he commends celibacy as faithful obedience to the Lord. He commends it. We don't know exactly um, what Paul's status was. So he could have simply been a single man who had never married, right? Um, he could have been a widower. Maybe his wife has died. Um, or he could, have, he could be a divorced man. 
Um, it was not out of the realm of possibility that, that he would have been married, um, converted to Christianity to follow, to follow Jesus, had this new call in his life, and his wife was like, I am not on board with that, right? All these things are possible, but we know he's single. And what he's saying is, if you can do it, I commend it to you. He commends it. And so a life of celibacy, and there are people who have chosen lives of celibacy, not, not celibacy, not just like monks and nuns, but, but regular people who, who go to jobs that we all know have, have committed themselves to a life of celibacy. And Paul is saying that is a high calling. That is a good and holy calling. I commend it to you. If, if you can do it, if you have the self-control and the power to do that, by all means, I commend this to you. Commends a life of celibacy as a faithful as faithful obedience to the Lord. And like I said, though, this is a challenge in our churches and even in our culture today. Um, there's a great pressure to be married. And I think especially in churches. And um, I don't know, if any of you have ever been, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think about like a church's singles group, right? Um, Thankfully, churches don't have those as much anymore. I think they still exist. But often, the church's singles group was really like a matchmaking group, right? Um, you didn't go and get to be single and celibate and have other like-minded people. It was, it was trying to, to put you in the singles group so you could get out of it. Um, that was often the case. Not always. I'm sure there were some really wonderful singles groups out there, and there might be some today. But by and large, that is my understanding of how these things worked. Um, and so the idea that we could create an environment that honors what Paul is saying is really important. How can we as a church be so welcoming to people who have been called to the celibate lifestyle that they don't feel on the outskirts, that they don't feel left out, that actually when they walk in here they realize they have a family that is bigger and greater than we could even imagine? What does that look like? And so... If someone is called to celibacy, Paul wants to be clear, don't feel that pressure. Don't let that pressure change you or change your calling or don't be disobedient to God because pressures of the world are being forced upon you. Some are called to celibacy and it is a gift and a call. It's very challenging and we'll address that, but it is a gift and a call from God. But what he's also saying is that married couples also face outside of pressures. So look at verses um, 10. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife. And so married couples face outside pressures as well. If, if those who are celibate face this pressure to get marriage, very frequently those who are married are going to be faced on some level with this idea of getting divorced, right? 
Um, Jesus teaches on divorce. He teaches, um, you can read it in Mark's Gospel, you can read it in Matthew's Gospel, um, and now you're seeing here in, in Paul's Gospel. And um, there are some gracious exceptions. Jesus says, um, what God has joined together, let um, no one put asunder, right? And so um, the normative teaching is if you are married, um, you should not be divorced. Now, there are exceptions. Um, if, if I think in Matthew's Gospel, if you read it, um, Jesus will say um, you, you can divorce your husband or divorce your wife if there is sexual infidelity. Um, that is grounds for divorce. Um, in this section, you see that an unbelieving spouse, right, um, could divorce their believing husband or their believing wife, that those were um, acceptable reasons for divorce. Um, but what Paul's trying to get across, and I think what is the consistent teaching of Scripture, is that in normal circumstances, this is the second bullet point in the middle section there, in normal circumstances, divorce is not an option. In normal circumstances, divorce is not an option. I tell that to folks when I'm doing premarital counseling. I'm saying, you're going into this thing. You can't go in with, a, with an escape route, right? We've got to be all in. Now, again, there are caveats to this. If you are in an abusive relationship, if you are in a relationship where you are being used and mistreated, um, you need to get help, and you might need to get out. Like, I will want to say that clearly. But in normal circumstances, divorce is not an option. Let's look at that a little bit. Um, I think sometimes we live in what seems like a revolutionary culture, right? We say the, the challenges we face today, no one has ever seen in the history of the world. And there are some unique challenges, um, the things like the internet, right, or the, the, how quickly we can travel and get to places, um, social media, things like this. Certainly, these are things that people have not ever experienced before with this technological revolution we're in the midst of. Um, but there are some instances, there are some things that we think are new to the history of the world that really are not quite so new to the history of the world. And, and one is you know, rampant and acceptable um, divorce in our culture. This is one that, that the Corinthians, like this was rampant in Corinth, right? You get married, you get divorced, get married, you get divorced. This is just something that happened, right? And so we can gain wisdom from Paul because he's speaking into a culture that's very similar to ours. Um, and so this issue of divorce would have been very common in Corinth. And what Paul wants to say is under normal circumstances, it should not be an option. When life gets difficult, when we get too focused on children, when careers and activities and child rearing, when sick parents or financial struggles, when these things cause us to look up and look at our spouse and wonder, is this the same person I married all those years ago? And this is a common thing that happened. Paul wants to say, divorce is not an option. That you look and you see that things are so different and so challenging. But there's this call, right, to take up our cross and to work through that and to bear each other's burdens and to allow the Lord to work in our relationships. There's this call on our lives as men and women who are married to persevere 
and to let the Lord in His faithfulness work through us and work in our marriages and our relationships. Paul even says if, if, if you have come to faith in Jesus and your spouse does not believe, if they're willing to still be married to you and, and, and they're willing to, you know, if you have a, have a good marriage, you stay married. And he says, in this beautiful relationship where two people have been joined together as one flesh, he says, if you believe and your spouse doesn't, you have no idea what you're staying married to them might do. Right? I mean, it's just an amazing passage. And he's, it's almost like he's speculating, but it's a beautiful thought. If the unbelieving partner, verse 15, separates, let it be so. In such cases, um, the brother or sister is not enslaved. But in verse 16, he says, how do you know whether you will save your husband or save your wife by being faithfully committed to them, by walking with them, even when they're not with you, almost like dragging them along, right? Dragging them along to the foot of the cross because of what God has done in your life. That is very hard. This is very hard. But it's the way of the cross. It's the way of Jesus. And so Paul is calling us in our marriages to be faithful and committed and to realize that, that, that under normal circumstances, right, that this is not an option. If you're in an abnormal circumstance, if you are in, in, in harm's way, if you are in an abusive relationship, that is a different thing. And please come talk to me because we want to help you. But if you and your wife are just having a hard time, you and your husband are just having a hard time, you also can come talk to me because we'd love to walk with you through that. But we want to say we're committed to each other and we're committed to the Lord. And we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to work in the midst of that. Again, though, this is foolishness, right? In the eyes of the world. You're supposed to be happy. It's not supposed to be hard. If it's hard, you need to move on and go somewhere else. That's, that's the message you'll get, right? That's what I tell people. If you're, if you're having trouble even, if you, not all secular counselors like this, but many are, I think a very quick advice is going to be, well, do you need to get separated? Do you need a divorce? Because it's foolishness in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of God, this hard way, this hard road is wisdom. Then um, next bullet point down, we've sort of hit on this already. Resisting these pressures, whether it's pressures on the celibate life or pressures on the married life, is hard work. I don't want to pretend that, oh, the Holy Spirit will give you grace and make this really easy. He will give you grace, but He will not make it easy. It is hard work. It requires cross-bearing. It requires Christian community and friendships to walk along, even in the happiest of marriages, right? We need people to come alongside us, to work with us. Uh, for those who are called to a life of celibacy, you need people to come alongside you. And friends, we need to come alongside them and provide a, a family and a place where they can have relationships and deep relationships, not superficial ones, but deep, meaningful relationships. This is hard work, and the way the Holy Spirit allows us to work it out is in community. That's sort of the, the second point of our vision, right? That we're a place where people find rest in the presence of God and a place where people find, find friendship in the fellowship of believers. We need friends. We can't do this by ourselves. The Holy Spirit works in our friends, in our relationships. 
And that's what we believe as Christians we can offer the world. Then the final thing, final point there, and this is so this is so important to remember. In all things, God is gracious and good. In all things, God is gracious and good. There are some who are not married that struggle with celibacy and have struggled with celibacy in the past, right? Um, there's others who've been through a divorce. There's others who are, who are living in hell and it's not your fault. There's others who've been through a divorce and it's not your fault. Um, there's others that maybe have been through a divorce and you made no attempt to make things right. Okay, we've all been through stuff. But God is always gracious and good. God is always gracious and good. He's eager to forgive. There's nothing that you could have brought here this morning. No relationship failure. No challenge. No difficulty. No failure on your part. There's nothing that you can bring in here. There's no shame that you can bring in here that Jesus has not erased on the cross. And that's important to remember because we've all been through stuff, right? And we've all made our mistakes. And we all carry some sort of shame and some sort of burden. And yet, the God who created everything, the Lord of the universe, loves you. Personally, He loves you. And He's welcomed you into His kingdom. And it does not matter what you've done or what's been done to you. Jesus is here for you. He forgives, he loves, he welcomes in, and there's no suffering he, that you have experienced that he has not carried with him into the gates of hell. And he's come out on the other side, a new person, raised from the dead. In all things, God is gracious and good. The final section... Um, Paul wants to just close the loop on this idea of, of status. And it's not just marital status, you'll see. Um, look at verses 17 to 24. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. For each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let them remain with God. So what Paul wants to drive home here is that the most important status is our status before the Lord. The most important status is our status before the Lord. What he's doing is, is bringing into this idea of 
of marriage and celibacy. He's bringing into this idea of marriage and celibacy these illustrations, right? And so he says, for instance, if you were circumcised before you met Jesus, that does not mean that you need to change your status to be uncircumcised. There were ways people tried to do that. Um, you can read about it. Um, if you were uncircumcised, right, and you met Jesus, it does not mean you have to be circumcised. This does not mean you have to become Jewish. Paul was very familiar with that. The whole letter to the Galatians is about people who thought they had to not only follow Jesus, but change their status and become Jewish men and women. And Paul is saying, no, you don't have to do that. And then he gets to something that's actually really hard to hear. And he says, if you were a slave before you found Jesus, that does not mean you have to change your status. And likewise, if you were not a slave before you found Jesus, it also does not mean you have to change your status. Paul is not saying that he says you should just accept being a slave and be just, you know, this, this myth of this sort of, um, you know, this good slave. That's not what he's saying. Because he does say, right, if you can be free, by all means, take your freedom. But what he's saying is in the midst of being a slave and the tragedy that that is and the suffering with that, remember you are loved by Christ. And on the last day, that's all that will matter. And if you're, a, if you're an owner of a slave or if you're a free person and you're taking pride in that, remember on the last day that the only thing that's going to matter is were you a slave to Jesus? That these earthly statuses are meaningless in the eyes of God. And with the slavery piece, he's actually creating an environment where slavery is impossible. And you see it, if you were to read um, Philemon, um, you see it really clearly in that, that, that Paul is leveling the playing field. And if you were in Christ, whether you were a slave or a master, in Christ, we're all on equal footing. And it makes this idea of slavery an impossible thing to lift up as a good. And so what Paul is driving home, if we circle back now to this discussion of relationships and marriage, is, is that your status before God is what matters on this earth. It is what matters in eternity, right? And so anything we might desire or hope to be, whether it has to do with marriage or celibacy or, or any other thing in our life, um, position at work, right? Um, position in a family, whatever it is, these things don't matter compared to our status as children of God. That's what's most important. Our status as children of God is the most important thing to remember. Now, there are things in life that we're going to strive for and that we're going to want, and that's okay. But if they leapfrog the importance of our status before the Lord, that's problematic. They become idols before us. And Paul is saying... Whatever condition we are called, let us remain with God, first and foremost. Don't let our status, don't let our condition take us away from our um, reality that we are children of God in Christ. And so then, how are we going to bring this home? Well, a couple things to remember. <clears throat> um, sort of circling back now with the idea of status, that God wants to have peace with our status before the Lord. It is really easy to be unpeaceful and unsettled about where God has put us and where God has called us. 
And there's certainly things that we have been called, that we've been placed in in situations and maybe even suffering that we've been placed in that, that God wants to rescue us out of. But above all, He wants us to have peace. That Christ has died for us and been raised from the dead. And by our having faith in Christ and being attached through them, He will pull us through the gates of death into the eternal kingdom of God. And when we have peace with that, then the Lord can work in these other areas of our lives. Like we said, it's going to be hard, but the Lord can do that. But only when we have peace that we are children of God. And the second thing circles back to this idea of generosity. God is calling us to have generosity that begins in our homes and extends into the world. When we share the self-giving generosity in our most intimate relationships, when that is normative for us, when that is something that we see day in and day out in our homes, it will consume us in the best and most beautiful way and extend into the world where we can be generous with those we meet. We can be generous with our time. We can be generous with our money. We can be generous in our relationships. When the generosity Paul is describing, this specifically for marital relationship, but, but when we practice that in our marriages, then that generosity by the power of the Holy Spirit will consume us and filter out into the world. And that's a beautiful thing. When people see and know followers of Jesus as generous people, as loving people, as people who have compassion and care for others, it's a beautiful thing. But it's also going to start in our homes, right? It's going to start in our homes, it's going to start in our churches, and it's going to spread out into the neighborhoods and the office places, and if we go on mission trips, into the far corners of the world. But, but it's going to start in our hearts and in our homes. And so the generosity that begins in our homes will extend into the world by the grace of God. So we did it, right? We got through most of chapter 7. Um, that's a tough chapter, right? Y'all did great. Um, <clears throat> it can be a hard thing and a hard teaching, but God is so gracious and good. And that's one of the things that really bubbles out of this letter is the grace of God is so central to everything Paul says that it's going to be okay. And God's grace will prevail. And He's holding us tightly in His grace by His Holy Spirit. And so let us leave here walking forth in, in generosity, walking forth committed to one another, walking forth committed to others and to spreading the good news of Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for the generosity that You've shown us in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that You would help us to show it to others. Do pray, Lord, for our marriages, that you would be in the midst of them and strengthen them. And pray, Lord, for those who have been called to a life of celibacy, Lord, that we would, um, as a church, be a place where everyone finds family. Those who are married, those who are single, that they would know the love of Jesus in a family. And Lord, we pray that this um, generosity and commitment that we have to where you've put us that it would be a beacon of light for your gospel in the world, that others would come to saving knowledge of your son Jesus um, through our witness to him. We ask this in his holy and precious name. Amen. <laughs>